Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. This season, we are posting the recordings from our HBG Bible Talks event in 2021 with Brother Ben Hall of Brooklyn, New York, titled Continuing the Kingdom, Lessons from the Book of Acts. Morning, if you would open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I'm really thankful we could all be together this weekend and today. This is fun. The book of Acts begins this way. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. You find that first that first sentence a little bit curious, a little bit strange. So uh, this, this is the kind of the second part of the author, Luke's writing. We know from the Gospel of Luke's address the same individual, Theophilus. So this is just part two of the story. But look at the way he describes the story that he's been telling and the story he is telling. The first account I composed about all that Jesus did and taught. Is that what yours says? That's not really right, is it? It doesn't say what he did and taught. It says all that he began to do and teach. Which you would think, well, wait a second, I thought the Jesus story was over. And even now, it's going to be over pretty quick. He's going to be ascending, spoiler alert, ascending back to heaven in just the very next paragraph. So what do you mean began to teach? It's done. We're on to a new thing now. We're on to what the Jesus followers are going to do because Jesus' deal is over. seems to me that what Luke is telling us is a little bit about what this book is going to be about. If Luke part one was all about what Jesus began to do and teach. Then part of what he's saying is this second part is about what Jesus would continue to do and teach. So what was that? What is the story of the book of Acts? Tell us about Jesus's doing and teaching. What is it? Uh, Well, first off, he's not on earth, though he does appear in the story on a number of occasions where he comes in to speak to some of his apostles and things. So he's not absent from the story, but he's not on earth. And he is much more of a, this sounds like a, I don't mean this in a blasphemous way, but in the events that occur, he's sort of a background player in the story. Now, he's really engineering the whole thing, but he's not present or as much in the foreground as we might think. Um, but what's going on with these people who are following Jesus and that Jesus is working with and working through? What's the book of Acts all about? I suppose there's a lot of different ways you could read this book. One way you can read it is a book about how uh, the church is supposed to function. And there's a lot of great, important, critical lessons about how churches that are following after Jesus the Christ are supposed to live and function and activities they do and don't engage in and stuff. So you could say, well, the book of Acts is a book about the church and about how to how to be uh, God's people. And that's true. Uh, another person might say, no, 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 that's not right, because, look, so much of it's about the work that those people are doing outside of the congregation. They were preaching the gospel. There's lots of sermons recorded. So actually, I'd say the book of Acts is about evangelism, about how to preach the gospel. That's hard to argue with. There's a lot about preaching the gospel in the book of Acts, and there's a lot of important principles, both in what they said when they were preaching, but also how they went about that work. So you can say that's what it's about. Someone else may say, no, you're not right, because actually the preaching they did was a specific type of preaching a lot of times. They were trying to explain the gospel. So really, the book of Acts is a great tool for apologetics, how to define what the gospel is, how to interact with different types of people and uh, give a defense for the true nature of the gospel. So who's right? What's the right answer on all this? Oh, by the way, someone else might say, 
No, dude, this book is just about people who have extreme faith. What big evangelistic thing was Paul doing in Acts 27 when he was riding a boat that got shipwrecked? He wasn't preaching that much in that story, and there wasn't much of a church on that boat. It's just a story about people who have faith in Jesus, and it shows about how to have faith in Jesus. And that's true, too. So what's the right answer? What's this book all about? What's the message? What's the story of the book of Acts? Keep going in this little paragraph here, and I think we're going to start to get a hint. It says, to these, that is Jesus to his apostles, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. And here's what Jesus was speaking about. Speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Move a little forward in the story to uh, Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, the occasion of Philip, Christian man, an evangelist. Going about in Acts chapter 8 and verse 12, it says, But when they believed Philip preaching, all right, yeah, that's our theme, right? Well, what was he preaching? Preaching the good news about the kingdom of God. And uh, the name of Jesus Christ, or we might say Jesus, the king, they were baptized, men and women alike. Go a little bit forward again to Acts chapter 19. We're skipping some references here. Actually, look at Acts 14 on your way. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. When they were talking to these people who were being faithful people and exhorting them to remain faithful to Christ and even demonstrating how to be faithful to Christ. In Acts 14 and verse 22, they said this. Uh, Paul and Barnabas were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must remain faithful. Is that what your says? Get it again. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now go to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. In verse number eight, whenever the apostle Paul came to the city of Ephesus and met some disciples and started working with them. In verse eight of Acts chapter 19, it says, and he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And one more in Acts chapter 28. The very end of the book, sort of the, the bookend from our introductory uh, reading, Acts chapter 28 and verse 30. Actually, verse 23 has another reference to what Paul was doing, testifying about the kingdom of God. And the very end, this is it. And you would think, boy, Luke, did you forget something? You didn't write an ending to this story, man, because this is how it ends. Verse 30. Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters in the city of Rome. And was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord, the master, the ruler, Jesus Christ, the king, with all openness unhindered. Seems to me Luke's telling us something with these references scattered all throughout the book and especially at the very beginning and the very end. What Jesus began in all that he did and all that he taught was the kingdom of God. You know, that's actually what Jesus would say whenever he showed up. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, depending on whether you're reading from Matthew, Mark, or Luke. The kingdom is here. And everything that he did, those miracles, Jesus said whenever people were questioning what he was doing with casting out demons and such, they said, well, maybe you're working with the demons. And Jesus said, no. Don't you guys get it? Since I'm doing the stuff that I'm doing, the kingdom has come. The kingdom is among you. You're missing the whole point here. Everything that the story of Jesus and his followers was all about was the kingdom of God. Just like Jesus taught his followers to pray, your kingdom come, your will 
be done. And so whenever we read the book of Acts, what we're reading is a story of the continuing of the kingdom. And the fascinating thing is it didn't look very dramatic. It looked like simple people helping each other out wherever they happened to be living on earth. It sounded like people telling people about Jesus being king, but somebody in the city of Rome where Paul was preaching this here at the end of the book in this strange ending, they might say, what are you talking about, man? Last I checked, it's Caesar's face that's still on the coins. Last I checked, he's the one making all the rules. I don't really see this Jesus of Nazareth being the king. Jesus came and brought the kingdom to earth in a surprising way, in a way that nobody expected or saw coming. And he continued it, and I would say continues it, in ways that are surprising or that we may not expect or we may not always recognize. And that's the story of the book of Acts, is people through whom Jesus was continuing his kingdom rule and extending it to more and more people all across the earth. So we're going to consider this for the next uh, couple hours today. What lessons do we learn about the continuing of the kingdom in the book of Acts that can help us to be kingdom people today? To not think of ourselves as whatever you might identify yourself as, but as a citizen of heaven, somebody who belongs under the rule of King Jesus and doing his work, not the work that you personally are doing in your own little kingdom, in your house or your life or your body or your family, not continuing the kingdom of whatever nation we may happen to live in, but continuing the work of King Jesus. So let's talk about this a little bit. Let's talk about what Jesus started here in Acts chapter one. What is the thing that Jesus started? What is this kingdom that Jesus started? Uh, go back to Acts chapter one. We're just going to look at the text here and talk about it and look at some of the Old Testament background included. Now, Acts chapter one is we pick up uh, in verse four. As Jesus had been talking to his disciples for 40 days, his apostles in particular, uh, but I suppose others that Pierce would have been present based on some details later in chapter one. Verse four, it says he gathered them together and he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for what the father had promised, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy spirit. Not many days from now. In other words, Jesus is giving them the signal when it's game time. Here's what's going to happen. Verse six. So when they had come together, they were asking him saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs, which the Lord, which the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were engazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Okay, so um, this is an amazing scene and a, a great little conversation and deal. Uh, first of all, this question they asked in verse six. Is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? I wonder, was this a bad question or a good question? So here's bad question. Bad question is they're like, hey, Jesus, it's been 40 days since you rose from the dead. When are we going to get this thing popping and go take down Caesar in Rome and knock out the chief priest that killed you? When are we going to do all the stuff? I mean, we know we're excited about really taking control of things here. When's that going to happen? And that could be what they're saying. It's a um, and one way to read that is that Jesus says, come on, guys, you don't you don't get to control when things happen and all that kind of stuff. Y'all just need to settle down, wait for what God's going to do. Stop. Just be patient. 
Uh, and in other words, you read verse seven is kind of a rebuke. They were, they were asking a bad question. I, I tend to think, I don't think so. And I'm, I may be wrong about this. Either way, it doesn't change that much. But I think it's, I think it's somewhat relevant. Uh, they'd spent 40 days talking with Jesus about the kingdom. And Jesus doesn't do what he would do at other times when the disciples would ask bad questions where he would say, oh, faithless generation, or oh, when are you guys going to learn? Or, oh, do you still not understand? He doesn't do that. What he says is, you guys need to be patient. You need to wait. You don't get to control this. The Father has a sign when these things are going to happen. I think actually this is a good question. I think this was, I mean, not a perfect question because obviously Jesus says, you guys just need to chill and don't worry about it. But he doesn't, I don't see it as a, a major rebuke of them. And the point being, yeah, the kingdom is coming. It's about to happen. Actually, go wait. The spirit's going to be poured out and that's going to be the signal that it's going to be happening. And the father has fixed these things, changes to come about in the world and all this sort of stuff to happen. It seems to me that verse six was sort of the question they should have been asking because of all the stuff Jesus had been telling, the exciting things that Jesus had told them about the kingdom rule that he was launching on earth through the work that they would do. And then this strange event happens where Jesus is taken up in heaven. So put yourself in the place of the disciples. We have a few more than 12 people, which is a bummer. It'd be great if we had 12, but this is good enough. It's fine. There may have been a few more than 12, but whatever. So here they are, and you love Jesus so much. You were broken whenever he died on the cross, and you were elated whenever he appeared to the brethren in that upper room and the stories you heard from the women that he had, he had risen. And being with him for these last 40 days have just been the best, and it's been hope again. But then as he's speaking to you, He's gone. There you see him go, ascend into the clouds and out of your sight. I gather that it was really difficult for them or it was really uh, captivating to them because two angels appeared and they didn't even notice them. So much so they had to say, hey, hey, where are you looking up? Stop it. Stop looking up into the clouds. You got things you need to do. He told you to do some stuff. Go and wait. And the statement is just like he went, he's going to come back. So this isn't the end of the story, but you've got things to do in the meantime. For us, this is just kind of a magical, I don't know a better word, but a magical sort of scene of him ascending, flying away into the clouds. But it had more significance for these men and for anybody who read the Bible, for the Old Testament in particular. We don't always read the Old Testament as much or think about it as much. But I think this is a place where we want to go back and try to capture the significance of this moment. And what it meant for these men as they were there. So let's go back to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter seven. I want us to look at a prophecy that spoke about this moment. Uh, and not just, oh, Jesus would fly away from planet Earth. But what this moment meant in terms of the kingdom and the work of the kingdom that Jesus would do. So Daniel seven is a prophecy about the nations, except when you read Daniel seven, it doesn't look like nations. It looks like monsters. There's all these different beasts that appear and they all have these different features that are pretty terrifying and they all represent different world empires. But whenever you come down to verse nine, we get introduced prophetically to the story of Jesus. Daniel seven and verse nine says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. That is God himself. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and books were opened. All right, pause for just a second. How do you feel in this scene? 
as you kind of see what Daniel is, and I kind of hope we are seeing what Daniel is seeing, and you see this vision of all these thrones being set up, and then the Ancient of Days, the Ancient One, takes his seat, but it's not some sort of grandfatherly figure. There's fire coming out of his, like a, a river of fire flowing out of his throne, and there's thousands Tens of thousands, myriads that are there attending him, standing at attention, honoring him, reverencing him in whatever way. And then court is in session. It's about to go down. Then I kept looking. I bet you would. Because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain. These are some of those monsters from early in the chapter. We're not getting into all of that uh, as of now, but you read it later and uh, seek understanding there. And its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. So one of these monsters that was so fearsome and powerful goes down just like that before the judgment of the Ancient of Days. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. They're not really powerful anymore, but an extension of life was granted them for an appointed period of time. They're not really that powerful anymore, but they still exist is the picture. They're going to continue on whenever whatever happens next is happening. And so I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one, not like a powerful monster, like some of these other beasts that get portrayed early in the chapter. One, like a son of man, a human figure was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days uh, and was presented before him and to him, to the son of man was given dominion. The dominion that was taken away from all of those monsters, all these kingdoms of earth, that was taken away by the judge, by God. And this rule, this dominion, this authority was given to the Son of Man. Glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Verses 13 and 14 are the words that got Jesus killed. This is what Jesus referenced before the Sanhedrin decided we're done with you because they knew what he was talking about. They knew he was saying. Me, I'm the one that's being given all dominion and glory and kingdom and authority, and that was it. And they were done with him. Um, Notice some of the detail here. One is this is amazing scene. All these beasts and monsters and frightening things, the nations of the world. God says you're nothing. Just as much as you may think you claimed all your authority, I take it away and I'll hand it over to a single son of man, a single human figure. But notice where uh, how this human figure came before God's throne. What was sort of the uh, the vehicle that this son of man was on when he came to the throne? Do you notice that in verse 13? He says one was coming with the clouds of heaven. In other words, he was coming out of the earth and into God's sphere on the clouds of heaven. And he arrives and God says, this is the one in whom I'm pleased enough to give kingdom and authority and power and glory and dominion and all those things. Acts chapter one is the earthbound view of the prophecy of Daniel chapter seven. See that Daniel seven is this vision of someone, a son of man coming to take this authority over all the world, all the nations, all the peoples. He's the Lord of all. And in Acts chapter one, these men of Galilee were standing there watching it happen. And part of the reason the angel said, what you looking at? You should have already seen this. Jesus already told you about this. You've already read the book of Daniel. You know the story, guys. Now carry on. Let's keep it moving. So this is an amazing scene. And it's 
I think really important for us to understand this is the story of Jesus. This is the story of Jesus. Uh, the story of Jesus is him holding little children in his lap and raising the widow's son and healing the lepers and teach. He's, that's the story of Jesus. But this is too. And I should say this is the climactic story, uh, point of the story of Jesus. It's not really him dying on the cross, though without that, I guess you might say that's the climax. But this is where it was all leading. This is what it's all about. It's him taking authority, not just over each one of our individual lives in devotion to him, though he does take authority in that way. He's taking authority over all the universe, over heaven and earth. That's the story of Jesus. That's why the book of Acts is a story about Jesus' kingdom, because that's his whole deal. That's where it was all going the whole time. Okay, what does that have to do with us, though? What's our role in this cosmic kingdom that Jesus is ruling? Verse 15 is interesting because there's a continuation and there's an explanation of this vision. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. And the visions in my mind kept alarming me. He's bothered. He's worried. He's upset. What is going on here? And I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Verse 17 says the great beasts which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the holy one, of the highest one, excuse me, will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. And what if I asked you, based on what you know about verses 13 and 14, I said, hey, who's going to get the kingdom? Who's going to possess the kingdom? Who's going to rule on God's behalf? Based on what you know, that verses 13 and 14 are all about Jesus. What would you say? Duh. You'd say, well, Jesus, that's the story. Jesus is the king. He's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. Read your New Testament. That's the story. Well, what does this say the fulfillment of this prophecy is in verses 13 and 14? By the way, there's probably multiple layers to this, where there's even probably some things that may have predated Jesus that this relates to as well. But look again at verse 18. It doesn't say when the Messiah comes, he will be given this kingdom authority, but it says the saints of the highest one are going to be given this authority, this kingdom, this glory. You keep on going a little further, and he repeats this a couple times. Uh, verse 21, speaking about one of the beasts uh, and the horn in particular, verse 21, it says, I kept looking and that the horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom, not just one saint, not just the son of man, not just the Christ, not just Jesus. But it says the saints, verse 25 says he will speak out. That's one of these evil figures. He will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one and will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they'll be given into his hand for a time, times and half the time. But court, the court will sit for judgment and his dominion. That is one of these monsters, one of these kings of the earth will be taken away and annihilated and destroyed then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole of heaven will be given to Jesus Christ. That's what I would say. And that's what verses 13 and 4 teach. That's what Jesus said. But then it's weird because what this verse says is it will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. All right, is this weird or is this weird? Which is it? Is Jesus the one who rules the kingdom of God or are the saints the ones who are doing it? What do you
do you think you would say about that? And then it gets weirder when you go to the New Testament. Because Paul would say things like, God has raised up Jesus and seated him above every name that is named at the right hand of God. And we are seated with him in the heavenly places. Wait a second. How are we seated with him? Or go read the book of Revelation. The whole story is indeed about how Jesus overcame, and but also all of his saints did. Here's what I think we learned from Daniel 7, and I may be incorrect in my understanding of this, but I think what we learn is that, yes, not only is Jesus the one who is ruling God's kingdom, but we somehow have a role in that. God is ruling his kingdom through his royal priesthood, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 through 12. Not just through the king, but through those who serve under the king. Now, don't get it twisted. We don't get to sit with Jesus and be like, I'm glad I'm on the leadership council. I've had some ideas. That's not how this thing works. Okay? <laughs> but what it does show you is that Jesus is not a king who uh, possesses rule in ways that we would think about kingdom rule. And isn't that what he said right before he died? Right before he took the throne, he said, listen, I know how the monsters work. The beasts of the world, the, the nations, they rule by trying to dominate, trying to control, trying to manipulate for their own best interests. But it's not going to be this way among you. Whoever wants to be the king, the great one, the Lord, be the servant and the slave of all. I don't know, Jesus, that doesn't sound right. Well, the son of man, and that is not oh, I'm a guy just like you. That's the one who's going to fulfill the Daniel 7 prophecy to rule heaven and earth and to overthrow, not even overthrow, but to take the place of all the beasts. The son of man did not come to rule as someone who would be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus are about him claiming authority over all the nations, over all the earth, over all the world, and all those who follow him are participants in that rule. So therefore, when we read your kingdom come, your will be done, what we actually should be doing is praying, Lord, make me able to continue your kingdom rule, to do and to teach just as you did and taught, to bring about your authority into every person's life in every nation under heaven. That's the story that God is working through the gospel of Christ and through those of us who come to him. So here's the thing that I take away from Daniel 7 in this introductory section of the book of Acts. And that is that the kingdom reign of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his sitting on the throne. The kingdom reign of Jesus is an empowering privilege and a transformative calling for disciples. Whenever we walk around every day, we shouldn't walk around with our shoulders slumped. We don't need to walk around with our chest puffed out either. But stand up tall. You're one of the king's people. Maybe I'll say it this way. You're one of the kings. That's what he said. You're a kingdom of priests. You're kings and priests, one translation says. You're a royal priesthood. That's an empowering privilege. Whenever you come to Jesus, when you give your life to Christ, you've been baptized in him, you're following him every day. You're a part of you're one of the saints of the highest one, Daniel 7. You're one of the people of Christ. You're a part of his royal priesthood. That's significant. Your life is a big deal. 
But also that means you can't keep on living the way that everybody else is living in the way that you might want to live a lot of times. It's a transformative calling because this rule is not like we think of rule in the world where I become a king and now everybody just does my stuff, listens to me. No, this kingdom is not built that way. Go back to the book of Acts. And actually go to Acts chapter 2, because really Acts chapter 2 is when the kingdom is announced. The rest of the Acts chapter 1 is so wonderful and critical, actually teaches us a lot about the coming of the kingdom and the nature of it. But in Acts chapter 2, like Jesus said, the spirit comes, and that's sort of the signal. Just like Isaiah had prophesied and Ezekiel and others, when the king comes, the spirit will be poured out. That'll be its time to make all this stuff happen. But uh, Peter goes on and he preaches about Jesus. And when he gets near the end of the sermon, Acts chapter 2, and uh, let's just start in verse 32, Acts chapter 2 and verse 32. Listen to uh, Peter's teaching about Jesus, his sermon about Jesus. He says, this Jesus God raised up again, the one that you killed, to which we were all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Right hand of God is not like, oh, he's back with his dad. True, Jesus was reunited with his father, but that's not the sequence of the right hand. The right hand of God, that's the king's seat. He's on the throne, in other words. The promise of the spirit, he has authority over all. He's pouring this out. The kingdom has come, Peter is saying. For it was not David, the king, who ascended into heaven, but he himself said, the Lord, the ancient of days, the highest one, said to my Lord, the king, the master, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, here's Peter's conclusion. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. He's been made the king, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, this kingdom reign of Jesus, these people were terrified. The text says in verse 37, they were pierced to the heart, stabbed him straight through. It was the worst thing they'd ever heard. They had killed God's king. They had killed the Messiah. They had rejected the son of man that the ancient of days has put on the throne. And remember what the ancient of days was doing. It wasn't a picnic up there. Court was in session. Fire was flowing out of the throne. Judgment was coming. What's going to happen to us? We've rejected the one that's been put on the throne. What's going to happen to us? And so they said, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized each one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call himself. Come, repent of your sins, be baptized into Christ. You can be a part of this kingdom. You can have all this. And look what happens when they did it. The text goes on and says, many of them did receive his word. And then the kingly people started ruling. May I say it better? God started ruling through them. Verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching. They were listening to what the kingdom code was all about. And they were devoted to fellowship, partnering to work together to support each other in their kingdom efforts. To the breaking of bread, commemorating how this kingdom even started, remembering the death and resurrection of the Lord and to the prayers, looking not to their own strength like most kings of most nations do, but rather looking to the strength of the ancient of days, the one who really sat on the throne. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe because, by the way, it's an awesome thing 
to be a member of the kingdom of God, to be one of the saints of the highest one, to be working with, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles to prove that the kingdom truly come, of course. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. They weren't doing what most kingdoms do, which is just try to take, 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 but rather to actually share, to give, to provide for one another. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, which would have been certainly a strange thing. What are you doing selling your property? Your family's lived here for generations. This is God's holy land. How could you give that up so easily? Well, we're doing a new thing now. The old things have passed away. The new has come because Christ is king and we're in his kingdom. We don't need all this old stuff anymore. We don't need property in a country that we're not even members of anyhow. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Can you imagine living in the city of Jerusalem and saying, what's going on with you people? Why are you living this way? Y'all seem so unconcerned about not having as nice of a house anymore. Or you seem so unconcerned with the things that we're all really worked up about Rome because they're really still not working with us and doing what we want them to do. Aren't you guys going to join this protest or do this thing? No, we're not really into that anymore. I know I used to be. I used to be a real zealot for that stuff, but no no more. Right. Why are you guys all working together? Because actually, I noticed you guys have a lot of people from different countries. Some of y'all don't even speak really the same language. That's got to be tough to have a dinner party with four different languages at the table and stuff and one person fast. How do you do this stuff? This is what it's all about for us. Why? Because the king has come. The king has come. And we don't consider ourselves just beneficiaries of what he's done for us, though we are beneficiaries. And that's the only reason we have anything is because of him. But we know that it means something for us. He's given us a great commission of not just being good people and good neighbors and supporting each other. But of continuing the kingdom work that he came on earth in what he did and what he taught. And now he's told us to do the same. And so we're bearing the image of God like he wanted from the very beginning. We're trying to tell people about the rule of Jesus so they can come out of the darkness of this world and into the light of his rule and the goodness of it. We're doing whatever we can to be kingdom people and to continue what Jesus started uh, from the beginning of the story. I think this is an amazing way to think about being a Christian. There are a lot of amazing ways to think about being a Christian. But the book of Acts is so helpful to me in this um, and prophecies like Daniel and many others. That we're not just trying to be good people and just hang on long enough till when Jesus comes back, hopefully he'll let us go to heaven. That's not that's not what we're doing here. Um, we know that because we're devoted to him, though we are very weak and we mess up far too often and we sin against him. We know by the power of his grace, as we have faith in him, he's going to take us home. We know that. So in the meantime, our energy is focused on continuing to be faithful and loyal to him, but not just so we'll get something out of it at the end of the deal. So that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done more and more every day through the lives that we live. That's a real privilege that not a lot of people have. Uh, Well, not enough people have, I should say, and more people should have. And it should be a transformative calling 
the way we view the world, the way we live, the way we operate together as God's people. And I hope we can spend some time thinking about that today. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we praise you for the rule of your son, Jesus, who's defeated sin, defeated death, and now sits at your right hand. We thank you for making us part of the ruling class of your world. And we know we don't deserve it. It's only by your grace and by your mercy and by your patience that you've even forgiven us of our sins. But you haven't just forgiven us. You've given us the gift of being heirs with Christ and being seated with him in the heavenly places. It's honestly pretty overwhelming to consider how that's even possible. But we're truly grateful for your kindness to us. And we pray that we take this privilege seriously each day and that we'd be transformed by the call of the gospel, by the call of, of the good news of your kingdom. We pray that you'd change us more and more, that we would have your kingdom come into our hearts and in our lives personally so that your kingdom would come more and more on earth, even as it is in heaven, that your will would be done, that people would see you and be drawn to you to look forward to the time when Jesus will return to bring us home. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for listening today. We hope this lesson was helpful to you. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review that will help us reach more people. If you're interested in online Bible studies, please reach out to us, 717-585-0949 or capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information or group studies, check us out at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.